Chapter 17 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 17. Dionysian art, too, seeks to convince us of the eternal joy of existence. Only we are to seek this joy not in phenomena, but behind phenomena. We are to perceive how all that comes into being must be ready for a sorrowful end. We are compelled to look into the terrors of individual existence. Yet we are not to become torpid. A metaphysical comfort tears us momentarily from the bustle of the transforming figures. We are really, for brief moments, primordial being itself and feel its indomitable desire for being and joy in existence. The struggle, the pain, the destruction of phenomena now appear to us as something necessary, considering the surplus of innumerable forms of existence which throng and push one another into life. Considering the exuberant fertility of the universal will, we are pierced by the maddening sting of these pains, at the very moment when we have become, as it were, one with the immeasurable primordial joy in existence, and when we anticipate, in Dionysian ecstasy, the indestructibility and eternity of this joy. In spite of fear and pity, we are the happy living beings, not as individuals but as the one living being with whose procreative joy we are blended. The history of the rise of Greek tragedy now tells us with luminous precision that the tragic art of the Greeks was really born of the spirit of music, with which conception we believe we have done justice for the first time to the original and most astonishing significance of the chorus. At the same time, however, we must admit that the import of tragic myth as set forth above never became transparent with sufficient lucidity to the Greek poets, let alone the Greek philosophers. Their heroes speak, as it were, more superficially than they act. The myth does not at all find its adequate objectification in the spoken word. The structure of the scenes and the conspicuous images reveal a deeper wisdom than the poet himself can put into words and concepts. The same being also observed in Shakespeare, whose Hamlet, for instance, in an analogous manner, talks more superficially than he acts, so that the previously mentioned lesson of Hamlet is to be gathered not from his words, but from a more profound contemplation and survey of the whole. With respect to Greek tragedy, which of course presents itself to us only as word-drama, I have even intimated that the incongruence between myth and expression might easily tempt us to regard it as shallower and less significant than it really is, and accordingly to postulate for it a more superficial effect than it must have had, according to the testimony of the ancients. For how easily one forgets that what the word poet did not succeed in doing, namely realizing the highest spiritualization and ideality of myth, 
he might succeed in doing every moment as creative musician. We require, to be sure, almost by philological method, to reconstruct for ourselves the ascendancy of musical influence in order to receive something of the incomparable comfort which must be characteristic of true tragedy. Even this musical ascendancy, however, would only have been felt by us as such had we been Greeks. While in the entire development of Greek music, as compared with the infinitely richer music known and familiar to us, we imagine we hear only the youthful song of the musical genius intoned with a feeling of diffidence. The Greeks are, as the Egyptian priests say, eternal children, and in tragic art also they are only children who do not know what a sublime plaything has originated under their hands, and is being demolished. That striving of the spirit of music for symbolic and mythical manifestation, which increases from the beginnings of lyric poetry to Attic tragedy, breaks off, all of a sudden, immediately after attaining luxuriant development, and disappears, as it were, from the surface of Hellenic art. While the Dionysian view of things, born of this striving, lives on in mysteries, and in its strangest metamorphoses and debasements, does not cease to attract earnest natures. Will it not one day rise again as art out of its mystic depth? Here the question occupies us, whether the power by the counteracting influence of which tragedy perished has for all time strength enough to prevent the artistic reawaking of tragedy and of the tragic view of things. If ancient tragedy was driven from its course by the dialectical desire for knowledge and the optimism of science, it might be inferred that there is an eternal conflict between the theoretic and the tragic view of things, and only after the spirit of science has been led to its boundaries, and its claim to universal validity has been destroyed by the evidence of these boundaries, can we hope for a rebirth of tragedy, for which form of culture we should have to use the symbol of the music-practicing Socrates, in the sense spoken of above? In this contrast, I understand by the spirit of science the belief which first came to light in the person of Socrates, the belief in the fathomableness of nature and in knowledge as a panacea. He who recalls the immediate consequences of this restlessly onward-pressing spirit of science will realize at once that myth was annihilated by it and that, in consequence of this annihilation, poetry was driven as a homeless being from her natural ideal soil. If we have rightly assigned to music the capacity to reproduce myth from itself, we may in turn expect to find the spirit of science on the path where it inimically opposes this mythopoic power of music. This takes place and the development of the new Attic Dithyram, the music of which no longer expressed the inner essence, the will itself,
but only rendered the phenomenon insufficiently. In an imitation by means of concepts, from which intrinsically degenerate music the truly musical natures turned away, with the same repugnance that they felt for the art-destroying tendency of Socrates. The unerring instinct of Aristophanes surely did the proper thing when it comprised Socrates himself, the tragedy of Euripides, and the music of the new dithyrambic poets in the same feeling of hatred, and perceived in all these three phenomena the symptoms of a degenerate culture. By this new dithyram, music has in an outrageous manner been made the imitative portrait of phenomena, for instance of a battle or a storm at sea, and has thus of course been entirely deprived of its mythopoic power. For if it endeavors to excite our delight only by compelling us to seek external analogies between a vital or natural process and certain rhythmical figures and characteristic sounds of music, if our understanding is expected to satisfy itself with the perception of these analogies, we are reduced to a frame of mind in which the reception of the mythical is impossible. For the myth as a unique exemplar of generality and truth, towering into the infinite, desires to be conspicuously perceived. The truly Dionysian music presents itself to us as such a general mirror of the universal will. The conspicuous event which is refracted in this mirror expands at once for our consciousness to the copy of an eternal truth. Conversely, such a conspicuous event is at once divested of every mythical character by the tone-painting of the new dithyram. Music has here become a wretched copy of the phenomenon, and therefore infinitely poorer than the phenomenon itself, through which poverty it still further reduces even the phenomenon for our consciousness, so that now, for instance, a musically imitated battle of this sort exhausts itself in marches, signal sounds, etc., and our imagination is arrested precisely by these superficialities. Tone-painting is therefore in every respect the counterpart of true music, with its mythopoic power. Through it the phenomenon, poor in itself, is made still poorer, while through an isolated Dionysian music the phenomenon is evolved and expanded into a picture of the world. It was an immense triumph of the non-Dionysian spirit, when in the development of the new dithyram it had estranged music from itself and reduced it to be the slave of phenomena. Euripides, who albeit in a higher sense must be designated as a thoroughly unmusical nature, is for this very reason a passionate adherent of the new dithyrambic music, and with the liberality of a freebooter employs all its effective turns and mannerisms. In another direction, also, we see at work the power of this undionysian myth-opposing spirit, when we turn our eyes to the prevalence of character representation and psychological refinement from Sophocles onwards. 
the character must no longer be expanded into an eternal type but on the contrary must operate individually through artistic by traits and shadings through the nicest precision of all lines in such a manner that the spectator is in general no longer conscious of the myth but of the mighty nature myth and the imitative power of the artist here also we observe the victory of the phenomenon over the universal and the delight in the particular quasi-anatomical preparation we actually breathe the air of a theoretical world in which scientific knowledge is valued more highly than the artistic reflection of a universal law the movement along the line of the representation of character proceeds rapidly while Sophocles still delineates complete characters and employs myth for their refined development, Euripides already delineates only prominent individual traits of character, which can express themselves in violent bursts of passion. In the new Attic comedy, however, there are only masks with one expression. Frivolous old men, duped panders, and cunning slaves in untiring repetition where now is the mythopoic spirit of music what is still left now of music is either excitatory music or souvenir music that is either a stimulant for dull and used-up nerves or tone painting as regards the former it hardly matters about the text set to it the heroes and choruses of euripides are already dissolute enough when they once begin to sing to what pass must things have come with his brazen successors the new undionysian spirit however manifests itself most clearly in the denouements of the new dramas in the old tragedy one could feel at the close the metaphysical comfort without which the delight in tragedy cannot be explained at all the conciliating tones from another world sound purest perhaps in the oedipus at colonus now that the genius of music has fled from tragedy tragedy is strictly speaking dead for from whence could one now draw the metaphysical comfort one sought therefore for an earthly unravelment of the tragic dissonance the hero after he had been sufficiently tortured by fate reaped a well-deserved reward through a superb marriage or divine tokens of favor the hero had turned gladiator on whom after being liberally battered about and covered with wounds freedom was occasionally bestowed the deus ex machina took the place of metaphysical comfort i will not say that the tragic view of things was everywhere completely destroyed by the intruding spirit of the undionysian we only know that it was compelled to flee from art into the underworld as it were in the degenerate form of a secret cult over the widest extent of the hellenic character however there raged the consuming blast of this spirit which manifests itself in the form of quote, greek cheerfulness end quote, 
which we have already spoken of as a senile, unproductive love of existence. This cheerfulness is the counterpart of the splendid naivete of the earlier Greeks, which, according to the characteristic indicated above, must be conceived as the blossom of the Apollonian culture, growing out of a dark abyss. As the victory which the Hellenic will, through its mirroring of beauty, obtains over the suffering and the wisdom of suffering. The noblest manifestation of that other form of Greek cheerfulness, this Alexandrine, is the cheerfulness of the theoretical man. It exhibits the same symptomatic characteristics as I have just inferred concerning the spirit of the un-Dionysian. It combats Dionysian wisdom and art. It seeks to dissolve a myth. It substitutes for metaphysical comfort in earthly consonance. In fact, a deus ex machina of its own, namely the god of machines and crucibles, that is, the powers of the genii of nature recognized and employed in the service of higher egoism. It believes in amending the world by knowledge, in guiding life by science, and that it can really confine the individual within a narrow sphere of solvable problems, where he cheerfully says to life, quote, I desire thee, it is worth while to know thee. End, quote. End of chapter 17. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.